Welcome to Banking in the Shadows, a podcast that shines a spotlight on the worlds of financial and cybercrime, how it impacts the global financial system, and the people, organizations, and agencies tasked with fighting it. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. I'm Anita Horza, Europe Editor at The Banker. On today's show, we're shining a light on human trafficking and the critical role banks and financial institutions can play in the identification of suspicious activity linked with human trafficking. Joining me to discuss this important topic is Karen Leong and Craig Tim from the Association of Certified Money Laundering Specialists, or ACAMS, an international organization dedicated to combating financial crime and abuse of the global financial system. Karen is regional AML director for APAC at ACAMS. She has a wealth of anti-financial crime, global banking experience, spanning institutions such as Standard Chartered, JP Morgan, UBS, and Bank of America. Craig is the US head of AML at ACAMS. He previously worked on the global financial crime team at Bank of America, working directly with FinCEN, the Fed and US Treasury to bridge the gap between public and private sectors to combat financial crime. He has also worked at the US Department of Justice as Deputy Chief of the Money Laundering and Bank Integrity Unit. Karen and Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great to be here. So let's set the scene for our listeners a little bit and give them an idea of what we actually mean by human trafficking, which refers to the use of force, fraud or coercion to procure labour or commercial sex acts, not to be confused with human smuggling, which is the illegal transportation of people from one country to another. So how big of a problem is it? Let's throw some stats out there. According to the US State Department, right now, more than 25 million individuals globally are being forced into labor or the sex trade against their will, which is more than the populations of New Zealand, Singapore, Kuwait, Uruguay, and the Congo combined. And if that wasn't disturbing enough, almost 30% of people trafficked our children. Craig, has human trafficking always been this big of a problem? It's it's always been a problem. Um, it's certainly getting worse. It, it, it's one of those things that sort of lurks in the shadows. So m- most people don't see it every day. So they don't appreciate how big of a, a problem is. But let, let me give you another stat. More people are enslaved today than at any point in human history. I mean, that, that's staggering, right? When you think about the history of the world and where we are, 25 million people, I've seen estimates as high as 40 million today, you know, who have been trafficked or involved in, in human slavery as we, or modern slavery, as we record this podcast. That's, you know, even at the 25 million, million person number, that's one out of every 315 people in the world. It, it, it's just the scope of the problem is, is staggering. Why do you think that is? What's driving these sort of stats? You know, I think some of it is the global nature of of crime now and the ease with which, you know, people can move across borders. I think, you know, at its heart, human trafficking and human traffickers are looking to exploit vulnerability. 
And so I think where you have poverty, where you have natural disasters, I think they're exploiting all of these things. And so, uh, so I think it's the combination of those sort of underlying vulnerabilities have always been there, but now, you know, the sort of global nature of everything, you know, has made it easier for them to operate across borders and, and take advantage of, of these situations. Obviously, we've had a pandemic, a war in Ukraine and an ongoing climate crisis. But just to sort of provide some more context around the sheer scale of the problem, how does human trafficking compare with other top international crimes such as drug trafficking? Each year, human traffickers, and this is a, you know, they're exploiting vulnerability for money, right? This is this is a crime for money and for profit. Each year, human trafficking and modern slavery generate about $150 billion in revenue for these criminals. Another number that that's just that's just staggering. So, you know, when you think about, you know, the most profitable crimes in the world, you know, counterfeiting is is typically one. People don't think about it, but it, it's typically the top one. Drug trafficking was somewhere around $400 billion in, in annual proceeds. And then human trafficking with $150 billion in, in annual proceeds is third. So it is right up there with the most profitable crimes in the world. And in terms of those $150 billion in revenues, they're making that, what, just from, from forced labor or, or sex acts? Is, is that the main sort of sources of income? That's right. There's sort of two big pieces of this. One is for sex acts uh, and sexual exploitation, um, whether that's women or children or sometimes men. Um, and then forced labor is the other component where people are, are forced to work in you know, various sorts of industries in, in various parts of the world. And so it's the combination of those the revenues that those businesses make and that the criminals make from, from selling people for sex. We've had a whole series of crises in the last three years, the war in Ukraine, the pandemic and the climate crisis. And I wonder if that's really exacerbated the problem of human trafficking. Karen, it might be a good opportunity to sort of talk about the region that you're in sort of charge of in APAC. Are you seeing more human trafficking in, in the region? Has it become exacerbated by these sort of events? I'm not quite sure if it's accurate to say that it is, it's it's a bigger issue out in Asia. It really is depending on publication and when statistics are released, right? And also the fact that it, you know, the fact that we've got a lot more news around this, greater awareness that's out there. If we look at the numbers and we, and we call out the different regions, right? The International Labor Organization in their 2021 global estimates indicate that 50 million people are living in modern slavery. And if you break that down into the various regions, the Asia and the Pacific holds more than half of that global total, then followed by Europe, Central Asia, Africa, the Americas, and the Arab states. Now, I do think in general, countries in conflict and fragile states are a little bit more vulnerable to organized crime, which then in turn help fuel human trafficking. And also in the earlier research by UNODC, it pointed out that trafficking in persons could not occur on a large scale without corruption. So. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, right? I would say it's safe to say that no region in the world is spared from human trafficking capabilities. And what sort of are the social and economic costs for these regions or countries? So money produced from human trafficking basically goes untaxed, right? So there is no benefit to the community. Fair competition can also be affected by traffickers investing in legitimate business to launder their money and disguise um, the proceeds of crime. 
governments are left spending, they have to spend resources and millions of dollars in terms of preventing, treating and supporting victims of human trafficking. So this would include, for example, costs of developing strategies, empowering local leaders to contribute to anti-trafficking efforts to increase awareness. So take, for example, in Singapore, when one of the things that, that we've done is a multi-agency endeavor. Now that's seven different agencies. Can you imagine the time and the effort of trying to manage the issue and the situation? There's also the cost of the police who investigate, collect evidence of suspected human trafficking. Now, if we look at it socially, child labor and commercial sexual exploitation of children could also result in an entire generation of adults being unable to work. A lot of them suffer severe trauma and potential illness from years of abuse. We've heard stories of um, individuals who were caught up in human trafficking and have tried to escape what with serious injuries to themselves. Um, you know, it takes years for them to recover, not just from a, the physical abuse, but also the mental abuse. So I would think, and I like to think that it is of high social and economic cost. I first want to sort of bring this all back, this huge and growing problem of human trafficking. How does this relate to financial services and banks? Um, Craig, how are banks or financial institutions uniquely positioned to identify human trafficking operations through their financial footprints? Yeah, so we, we, we talked about how, you know, human trafficking, you know, at its heart is a, is a financial crime. It's a crime where the criminals are profit motivated and there's a lot of money. That money is all, well, not all of it, but a lot of it is hitting the financial system and hitting it in different ways. So whether it's the payments for transportation of their victims, so hotels and airfare, whether it's the money that the um, victims are receiving for sex or that the businesses that are profiting off of false labor are making and their accounts that they hold at banks, or just the movement amongst the criminals to, to move it up the organization or to try to launder their money. There are a whole lot of places where this money hits the financial system. And each one of those is an opportunity, no matter what your business model is, if you're in the financial sector, to identify this activity and try to help stop it. Are there different or specific financial sector actors where this, where this sort of proceeds from human trafficking are mostly being laundered or is it across the board? So it's going to hit a wide spectrum across the financial system. So obviously banks are, are a big one, right? Because you're going to have, you know, if it's generating cash, uh, you're going to have cash deposits at a bank. You're going to have corporate accounts for these companies that are involved in false labor. So that's a big one. But it doesn't mean that those other types of businesses wouldn't be involved. More and more, we've seen crypto involved in payments. You know, if you're buying sex, they may accept payments now in crypto. Uh, that could also be money services businesses or mobile payments companies. We've even seen prepaid cards. So I think it's it's really about you know thinking about whatever part of the financial sector you're in thinking about your business model, understanding human trafficking and the way that the money moves and what your vulnerabilities might be. So are they the main sort of areas of, of how human trafficking is financed? So they, they generate a lot of money, right? So they, they can be self-financed. But what we also often see is that they're run by organized crime groups and transnational organized crime groups. 
And so those organized crime groups are often involved in other types of criminal activity. So sometimes that other types of criminal activity will help fund their human trafficking operations. Sometimes it's the other way around where the, the money from human trafficking will help generate money to use in drug trafficking. Otherwise, we've even seen recently a trend where people are being human trafficked for the purpose of executing fraud schemes. So they're trafficking people and then forcing them all day long to, to try to commit fraud against other people. So it's, you know, when you're talking about these large organizations, they're, they're really businesses. And so human trafficking generates a lot of money, but they may have other sort of lines of criminal business, so to speak, that also generate money and, and can fund back and forth. And I understand that the FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, has actually designated human trafficking as a priority. Does that mean that financial institutions and banks need to be dedicating specific resources to trying to combat this crime? Yeah, so this is something really interesting that uh, the U.S. is experimenting a little bit, and it's still in the early days. Uh, you know, it, it won't surprise any of your listeners um, who work at banks or financial institutions that compliance can often be a bit of a box-checking exercise, right? You may not understand why you're doing it. It doesn't seem like it's leading into anything. And, and that's been true for years in anti-money laundering as well. So one of the things FinCEN's trying to do is you know, thinking about, wouldn't it be great if we could change or stop some of the box checking aspects of anti-money laundering and reallocate all those resources to actually finding bad guys, to actually going after human traffickers? And so it's in the early stages now, but they're in the process of revamping the way you think about an AML compliance program, maybe less about compliance and more about, you know, are we effective in getting bad guys? And so Hopefully, what it does lead to is institutions being able to devote more resources to, to human trafficking, because I'm sure, as we'll talk about later, it's actually really hard to detect and resource intensive. So it's really important um, that they're able to devote those that time and resources to try to find it. Yeah, I think we'll touch on some of those challenges as well as success stories um, later in the program. But I'd like to sort of dig a little deeper into the role financial institutions and banks can play in actually helping combat human trafficking. Karen, um, what signals or red flags should banks look out for when identifying human trafficking activity? That's a good question. And the reality is there isn't a silver bullet that's going to cut across all the red flags or there's a specific red flag that you can look at and it's going to give you all the indicators. The challenge around human trafficking with respect to red flags is that no single one is a clear indicator of trafficking activity, although each can be indicative of trafficking. Some of the red flags could potentially include large deposits of money into accounts, uh, which were then immediately withdrawn. The accounts are actually in branches close to international borders. Um, it could also be patterns of card transactions in even amounts of money between 10 and 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. Or potentially you can be looking at multiple victims sharing a bank account information. So you would have common phone numbers or addresses. Potentially you will also have um, sudden deviation from expected customer accounts of activity and also the use of anonymous financial instruments to pay bills. So these are some things that banks could look out for. How would these sort of red flags or signals fit within banks existing uh, or financial institutions existing AML or transaction monitoring procedures? Banks typically have 
a robust, well, I like to think it's a robust AFC framework throughout the client lifecycle with the bank. It would have strong KYC or client due diligence policies and procedures, um, which then in turn allow the financial institutions to understand who are the clients, what they do, where do they conduct their business, what do they use your, your banks to do in terms of supporting their business, right? And that helps in terms of identifying red flags. Having good and in-depth client data will help transaction monitoring systems, which may have AI and machine learning improve their accuracy. Banks should also have AML screening and transaction monitoring processes, which has clear paths of escalation when risks are identified. And these systems should be constantly updated or where possible um, to ensure that the evolving risk typologies are included. So if you're picking something up that could be related to drug trafficking, there may also be a human trafficking element to as well to that as well. How would a bank Absolutely. sort of how would a bank sort of understand those sort of relationships? Well, that's when AI and hopefully machine learning comes in, right? Um, you know, you could do it with current systems, current resources, but it does take time. With the technology such as AI and machine learning, it helps connect the dots a lot quicker than a person would. I imagine also an increasing sort of trend in in sort of financial crime and anti-money laundering is public-private partnerships, banks working with law enforcement. To what extent is that also playing a role here? Are you seeing these kind of partnerships emerge where banks are operating with law enforcement or even working with people who, who have been previously trafficked? There are public-private partnerships and, of course, financial institutions are working with law enforcement to address the issue. Um, a lot of it, of course, have to do with data sharing within the confines of what you can do from a regulatory perspective. You know, it's not just working law enforcement, but also ensuring that your staff is sensitized and aware of the typologies. And it's not just within the compliance function, it could be within the entire bank, right? Because it could happen at any point in time, getting the first line to understand what the clients of businesses are. Um, there's also um, supply management to that. So it's really looking at a lot of different angles and making sure that the information's actually fed back into law enforcement. Now, the two of you, before you joined ICAMS, you both worked in big global banks. I wonder if there's any success stories that either of you could share relating to um, work you've previously done on the banking side. Yeah, so I, I can jump in here, and, and this gets back to your public-private partnership question before. Um, you know, there was this notorious um, website called Backpage.com. It was, it was really the dominant marketplace for illicit commercial sex, uh, and they frequently advertised uh, sex trafficking victims, even children, uh, it, it was it was just an, an awful place and it was operating for years and it was earning hundreds of millions of dollars for facilitating, you know, if you were looking to pay for sex, you'd go to the website and they would connect you with with you know, women and children often who were who were trafficked. And uh, this was a case where a number of financial institutions in the United States got together because that's that's the other thing about these groups, you know, any criminal organization, you know, of any sophistication is gonna have accounts and activity spread across a number of types of institutions, even you know, banks, MSBs, crypto, right? They're trying to make it harder for them to detect. 
and, and they're effective at it, right? So when banks can come together and work with law enforcement at the same time, uh, that's really when we're most effective at, at doing these sorts of things. You know, if you tell me a case involves human trafficking, now I'm looking at that totally differently for a whole new set of indicators than, than I would otherwise. And so this case against Backpage, by law enforcement trusting the financial sector, so to speak, the financial sector then taking that information, going back, looking at it, sharing with each other, ultimately law enforcement was able to take down the site to arrest numerous people and, and seize a bunch of money that could ultimately go back to victims. So when we work together, uh, when we use AI and machine learning, like, like Karen mentioned, because these things, you know, it's never going to be one thing, right? It's going to be 10 different things to pick up on, but public-private partnership and technology can make a difference and, and it is making a difference. I sort of wonder, though, I guess, because we often hear in a sort of the financial crime space of false positives and you know, not that many successful prosecutions. Banks sort of submitting lots of SARS reports, suspicious activity reports, but how many of those actually lead to investigations or even successful prosecutions? Banks and other financial institutions deal with a huge amount of false positives. And then when they do think they identify it, they send it off somewhere and it's, it's not clear whether it ever gets looked at. But I think this is where you know, from a technology standpoint, that's where that machine learning data analytics can really help narrow those down, right? Like traditionally transaction monitoring has been sort of simple if then, right? So if client deposits X amount of money in X amount of days, then I'm gonna look at it, right? It's not the most sophisticated analysis. Whereas now you could say, you know, imagine all those factors that Karen went through. Okay, now if you hit on 10, 12, 15, right? You can change the way you dial it up. And then what it actually leads to is going to be much more valuable on the other end. It's going to make it much more usable for law enforcement. And then I think it is this, this public-private partnership. It, it's, you know, human trafficking is very hard to detect. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more that, you know, law enforcement provides feedback, the more that law enforcement can engage with the financial sector, whether it's through typologies or, you know, as that trust is built, sharing specific information, hey, this is a human trafficking case. You might have just thought it was a weird cash deposit, but it's actually connected to a human trafficking organization. And then as an institution, now I go back and look at it through a whole new lens and may have much more valuable information. So I think, I think these two things can really help us get past some of those traditional problems and challenges that we've had. Karen, are there any other specific challenges that you would highlight that banks face in trying to sort of combat and detect this specific type of financial crime? It's not specific to banks. Um, I do think that human trafficking in general, it's, it's a complex problem and it has, it's so far reaching. It requires a cross-sector collaboration from all sectors of society. If you think about it, um, it's normally associated with transnational crime. You're involving government, ambassadors, law enforcement um, across different countries and jurisdiction, and it's a painstaking process. There's also the treating and repatriation of victims, right? Um, if you think about it, victims are, while they are victims, they are also treated as criminals because they do break immigration laws when they are trafficked or they are forced into committing scams or fraud. So while we've seen some successes, it's still a big, big problem that requires a lot of intel and also a lot of resources. We're talking about region cooperation, right? And these syndicates evolve so quickly. 
let's look ahead to the future because there must be some promising technologies or developments in the pipeline that could really help banks and financial crime experts identify and prevent human trafficking. And, and Karen, you've already touched on one of those, which is AI. Is there anything else that, you know, from a tech point of view, that you think could really help combat this kind of crime? The role of AI in identifying human trafficking is it's basically evolving and improving as we talk about it. Um, in a recent roundtable we had with industry experts, a lot of them felt that AI will help detect thematic risks such as illegal wildlife trade and human trafficking um, due to the fact, of course, there isn't a single red flag, right? But technology helps us identify patterns that we don't see. They potentially even flag risk typologies and scenarios that we we're not even aware of. So it's more predictive and it helps us look at it in different ways. It also traces relationships between data points, like I said earlier, that might be too complex for a human mind to identify. So we take, for example, um, the problem of detecting human trafficking that, that um, you know, a business that's booking a hotel room frequently, that's part of their business structure, that's what they do, and it's showing up on bank records. Now, if for a human, you would have to wait for a certain pattern to develop, you need to do a look back, you need to look at thresholds and so on and so forth. Now with machine learning and AI, potentially you could bring in other information to associate with what you have, and it's related to human traffickers. So I think as technology evolves, gets better. And of course, with the data that, that we collect in financial institutions, putting together with contextual data and any of the other data out there on this, on adverse media, it becomes more solvable, so to speak. But I guess there's no accounting for the human specialists as well as the um, AI. I imagine it's a combination of AI working with people who know what to look for. Absolutely. Um, you know, AI helps us to a large extent in terms of crunching through the lot, the amount of data that's out there. But it's the human that has that risk awareness. It Sometimes when you, I don't know how to put it, you know, when you investigate or you're looking at a case, it, it doesn't smell right, doesn't look right, there's something wrong with it, but you can't tell off the bat. The machine's not going to be able to tell you what's wrong with it. But it's just that, that your gut's telling you something and you dig deeper and you dig harder. And that's when things start to unravel. And hopefully you find that, that it certainly is a, a risk that needs to be flagged and you need to isolate it and, needs, and, and you need to file the sound on it. There's also something I was reading about called the Liechtenstein Initiative's Blueprint for Mobilising Finance Against Slavery and Human Trafficking. Craig, did you want to tackle this? What is this? Is this going to really help banks or anti-financial crime specialists uh, detect and um, financial crimes related to human trafficking? So it, this initiative is really about creating awareness all over the world for countries who are at different stages in in how to attack the problem in different parts, um, of, you know, where the problem exists, for how to do it. And so it, it's really a comprehensive look at, you know, what can governments do, what laws need to be in place, how do you fund law enforcement, what should the financial sector do? It's taking a sort of whole of society approach, you know, what can non-government mental organizations do with that work with victims. So how can we solve all different aspects of, of, of this problem? And one of those aspects that we haven't touched on yet that where, where banks uh, can play a role is in helping survivors get back on their feet. 
So if, if you think about, you know, in, in all the ways these people are victimized, just another one is often financially. So the traffickers will open accounts in their name. They may launder money through their account. So now that, that account's flagged, it makes it hard to get a banking relationship. They may open credit cards in their account. It makes it very difficult to get credit after that because their credit record is ruined. And so, so on top of everything else, when they're finally able to extricate themselves from, from that situation, they find themselves, you know, sort of locked out of, of the financial sector. And, and you, you know, it's very hard to get a job to get back on your feet if you can't get a bank account and you can't get basic credit. And so one of the things that's been a part of this initiative um, has been to work directly with banks. And I, I think there's now, it started in the US, UK and Canada, and it's rolling out across the world where a number of banks and financial institutions, I think there's over 50 now, have signed up to say, look, we're gonna, we're gonna find a way to help here. And we understand that this might take a little bit of time. It might be more costly for us as banks because we're gonna have to figure out, you know, we're gonna have to do a little more due diligence than we do normally um, to, to get around some of this, but we think it's really important. We're gonna find a way to get survivors accounts to get them credit, to help get them back on their feet. And I think with, with the increasing focus on ESG at all banks, I've found this is something that boards really care about. You know, if you go to the board and explain, you know, the type of problem this is, the devastation it leads to these victims' lives, that, that they're very willing to try to make a difference here and, and try to help, even if it costs a little bit of money. And so I think that's just another way that, that financial institutions can, can make a difference here. That is an area, though, I think where a lot of banks have struggled historically, isn't it, in terms of doing credit checks uh, and, and sort of just in general, this whole area of financial inclusion. But do you feel that real progress is is being made? It's, you know, slow, but it's a start, right? Like, I think this, you know, things like this, educating, you know, within an institution about the problem, you know, getting back to an earlier point that this is not just a developing world problem. They, you know, human trafficking is occurring in the UK, in the US, in Europe, in, in every country around the world. You know, and, and it, you know, if you're within a, a financial institution, you know, I think, you know, whether it's AML or whether you want to get involved in, in the survivor initiative, you know, it's about telling the story internally, right? Because I, I think if you tell the story, if you explain what's happening, we've even brought victims in to help tell the story, right? It's, it's very powerful. And you soon see how you can make a real difference. You know, we, we talked earlier about how, you know, human trafficking and modern slavery is often sort of in the shadows. It's not something people see. So once you bring it out of the shadows, you tell those stories, you see the devastating impact it's had on victims, and then you explain to someone how they can make a difference. I, I think, you know, more and more uh, you're seeing banks getting involved and actually making a difference. Can I just add to that? With every, anything new and, and trying to solve a problem, it's always a bit of a journey. And the journey takes a while to get to the destination. But what's important is the fact that banks have started on that, right? There are toolkits as part of this blueprint. The conversations are happening within banks. That awareness is being brought to the light. So I think that while we like to be able to say that, you know, we could solve for this quickly, it really isn't a situation, but at least people have started on the journey. Yeah, I think it's encouraging. Um, 
And hopefully there's a lot of bankers listening to this podcast. Um, if they haven't started that journey, perhaps it's a journey they will after will start up after listening to this episode. Thanks for tuning into Banking in the Shadows and our discussion on human trafficking. I'd like to say a special thanks to our guests, Karen and Craig. Thanks, Anita. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for listening to Banking in the Shadows, a monthly podcast available from thebanker.com, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.